Turn with me now, please, to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. We'll begin by reading the last three verses of chapter 52. So 52, verse 13 through 53. Let's hear the Word of God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant Justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. Dear church family, Bernard of Clairvaux was a medieval writer quoted by Calvin more than any other. He was a a very experiential writer who had a very close life with Christ He reminds us of Samuel Rutherford in church history. Bernard of Clairvaux made this wonderful statement in talking about his relationship with Christ. 
He said this, Thou art my life. I am thy death. Thou art my righteousness. I am thy sin. Thou art my heaven. I am thy hell. Thou art my riches. I am thy poverty. How profoundly a believer is brought to be bound to Christ through his sufferings. And how our sufferings ought to draw us the more to him, to his passion. And it's that that we commemorate, as I mentioned already in prayer in these six weeks, passion coming from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer. We remember the sufferings of Christ. We remember that if we're true believers, how those sufferings bind us to Him and bind us to the triune God, they become our salvation without the passio, the passion of Christ. There'd be no hope for any of us. But oh, what a price. Oh, what a price. Oh, what a price. Your Savior and mine, dear believer, had to pay for our sins. This morning, we want to see a little bit, just a little bit of that from this most famous Old Testament chapter on the sufferings of Jesus, Isaiah 53. I want to look particularly at verses 4 and 5 in 10a, though we'll be looking a little more generically at other parts as well. Under this theme, why was Christ's beauty defaced? And we'll look at that in three thoughts. First, the human reaction to this question. That's verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Second, we want to see the prophetic insight upon this question. Verse 5. But... He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. And then we want to look thirdly at the divine will. The divine will that answers this question. Verse 10a. Yet it pleased the Lord. Pleased the Lord to bruise him. Well, many of us find it difficult, almost impossible, to read Isaiah 53 without being gripped, being gripped by a voice from another world that there are matters in this chapter that are far too high for us. We cannot grasp them. It pleased the Lord to bruise His own Son. We can't get our arms around it. It's too deep. It's too broad. It's too high. It's too wonderful. And yet, Though we are out of our depth, we are called to embrace it. We are called to receive it. We are called to drink it in. And our entire salvation depends upon it. So what we have 
in the last three verses of Isaiah 52, which really belongs with Isaiah 53, and all of Isaiah 53, is what scholars call the fourth and final servant song. The fourth and final servant song, which the prophet Isaiah sings. Four times Isaiah sets before us the figure of Jehovah's servant, on whom God promised to lay all the iniquity of his people. We are first first introduced to this servant theme already back in chapter 42. It's introduced with these words, Behold my servant, God is speaking here, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delighteth. So Jesus' title as the Lord's servant, Jehovah's servant, unveils for us the beauty of the Redeemer in his humility. That humility which is best expressed in what he was able to say about his own life. I do always the will of him who has sent me. I do always that which is pleasing to my Father. The beauty of Christ's humility is that he's always gladly submitting to be the servant figure. The servant figure prophesied in Psalm 40 already, Lo, I come to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. Jesus will do everything his Father has asked of him. And then we must respond to that and say, asking the question, the Ethiopian treasurer asked of Philip, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other man? And Philip's answer to the Ethiopian treasurer, who was reading this portion of Scripture and couldn't understand it either, was simply this. He began with that Scripture and preached unto unto him Jesus Christ. Almost every verse of this particular servant song, which goes through the end of Isaiah 53, is applied somewhere in the New Testament to Jesus. There is no chapter in the Old Testament that is so vividly portraying the cross as Isaiah 53. I once had the privilege of sitting beside a Jew uh, as we as we rode on a boat going to the Statue of Liberty. And uh, I was talking to him about the Old Testament. And when I asked him the question, have you ever read Isaiah 53? He said, yes. And I said, have you ever thought about how Isaiah 53 corresponds with the New Testament. And he looked down and he wouldn't answer me. I went too far too quickly. Wouldn't say a word. Wouldn't say a word. You see, your eyes are blinded if you can't see that Isaiah 53 it's almost as if Isaiah was living seven centuries later and was camped at the cross. The great church father Augustine said, Methinks when I read Isaiah 53 that Isaiah is at the cross. This is a beautiful chapter. Yes, deep. Yes, profound. But also beautiful. And as I said, it actually begins in verse 13 in chapter 52. With God the Father fixing our gaze first on God the Son in precisely the same way that He does at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
at that extremely significant moment in the Gospels when Jesus is not only baptized, but when the heavens open and he's anointed and identified for the ministry that God the Father is giving to him. Behold, this is my Son, the Beloved One in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's how this opens as well. The sufferings of Jesus actually begins with declaring his extraordinary exaltation, his glory, his honor, his dominion. Behold, my servant, verse 13 says, shall deal prudently. And then follows a threefold statement about his exaltation through his resurrection and through his ascension. He'll be raised, he'll be lifted up, he'll be highly exalted. This is not just about a physical resurrection and the historical ascension, but about the ultimate exaltation of Jesus. He's going to be filled with extraordinary glory and honor which belong to the servant of Jehovah who obeys the will of God perfectly. He's destined to be the king of glory. That's what the last verses of Isaiah 52 are teaching us. And so, when you enter chapter 53, and we discover that the way to that glory and exaltation is through a way of profound humiliation, a way that silences the mouths of kings, as verse 15 says, so that the faces of men and women are turned away from him, as if as if they are too appalled by the horror of what they see to speak about him or to look upon him. You see, then we discover in verse 2 of chapter 53 that this perfect glory, this exalted beauty of the servant of God in his redeeming role and ministry have been so effaced, so disfigured in his humiliation That Isaiah says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There's nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Verse 3 says he's despised and rejected of men. And the word despised here actually means to dismiss. You look at him and you would dismiss him as inconsequential. Or even to mock with him, to discard him as a figure not to be taken seriously because he's so disfigured. And the word esteemed, the word esteemed in Hebrew here is actually an accounting word. What it really means was that men and women, if they sat down and added up their assessment of this servant of Jehovah, they would conclude that it amounts to absolutely nothing. He's so disfigured in his glory. He's so damaged in his beauty that it seems there's nothing to say about this disfigured man. And so you see the contrast of the end of verse uh, chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53. This is the contrast in the New Testament of Philippians 2. It declares how Christ, the Lord of glory, came from heaven's highest exaltation, from the place where he shared all the fullness of the Godhead within himself, shared the glory that belonged to the Trinity, and became like unto us, and emptied himself, even unto death. Well, you have this incredible contrast of the states of Christ in Philippians 2, but also in Isaiah 52 and 53. In the course of bearing the sins of his people, Jesus, the exalted one, the king of beauty, the king of glory, would become so disfigured, so marred, that he would become unique in his sufferings, suffering more than any other man, suffering all the hell that all his people deserve forever and ever. That's what Isaiah says. He's marred beyond human likeness. His appearance is disfigured beyond that of any man. 
we grasp at how to understand this, don't we? But let me just try an illustration that's just very, very faint here, or maybe two of them. One is at a time of funerals. Have you ever been to a funeral where you expected to see the body in the coffin, but you got there and there was no body to be shown? Well, there was a body there, but the coffin was closed. And the mourning family just said to you, well, the accident that happened was so bad that we can't show the body. We just can't show the body. It's disfigured beyond recognition. And you stand there and you say, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I understand. I understand. And then they say, well, it, it, just, it just won't be edifying. It just won't be edifying to show the body. You, you turn away. You turn away in horror. Something like that that Isaiah is saying here. Something like that. Or maybe a second example. Someone gets in a very, very serious accident. They're in the ICU in the hospital. And the family warns you before you go in. Uh, you'll hardly be able to look at my loved one because there's so many tubes, there's so many injuries, there's... He's so bloodied. He's, there's just, there's, it's not a pretty sight. My loved one is disfigured. Defaced, quite literally. It's horrendous. It's appalling. The injuries are severe. You wouldn't want to take a picture of it. It's too bad. It's too bad. Now you multiply that times a hundred and you begin to grasp what happened to Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, beaten and bruised, spat upon, crowned with thorns, hanging naked on the cross, the exalted Lord of glory who took human nature to Himself. The Holy One who, while He was in glory, the very angels had to cover their faces with their wings because He was so holy and so glorious and so magnificent. And now, mere human flesh, hell-worthy people walking by the cross had to cover their faces, not daring to look upon this horrific sight of Jesus naked, on the cross, shameful, painful. What a contrast. It's, it's, you can't understand it. Why this perfect God-man, so, so pure, so holy, so sinless, so disfigured, so defaced, so humiliated, So, what's the answer? Well, the human reaction to this question is in verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We, we feel there's some connection. This can't just be about Himself. He was so perfect, is suffering so profoundly. Yet we did, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He is bearing the affliction of unspeakable grief. And all we can conclude in the human sense, if we don't have insight into it, is that, well, something terrible has happened. He's smitten of God. He's smitten of God. Maybe, is it because of his own sin? Well, that, that can't be. His, his character was perfect. And so we're confused. 
what, why would this ever happen? So severe, stricken by God, afflicted by his Father in heaven when he was obeying his will all the time. Well, verse 5 gives us the prophetic insight, Isaiah's insight, divine insight. But, this is what we say when we turn away because we can scarcely look at him. He's so disfigured. But, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. That's the gospel. That's the substitutionary obedience of Jesus Christ taking our place. This is what we deserve. He took what we deserved so He could give us what He has earned. His own salvation. He was wounded. Literally, in Hebrew, pierced. His outward body is assaulted by the wounds that he bore. And then he was bruised. You could translate that as crushed. The deeper sense of his wounding beyond the outward and the physical into the inner man. And then the text speaks about his chastisement. The chastising of the Messiah so that we could be set free. Chastisement even by his own father. You see, the difference between punishment and chastisement is significant. Chastisement, if I may say it so, is the exclusive prerogative, the exclusive preserve of a parent. A parent chastises his or her children. A stranger punishes. And you see, There's little doubt that the prophet is speaking to us here about the ultimate truth that comes out in verse 10, that it is God the Father who is pleased to bruise His Son, pouring out His wrath upon His own Son, judgment upon His Son, that our enmity against God might be dealt with. And these are the wounds, therefore, that bring about our healing. Like Bernard said, our unrighteousness is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. And so Golgotha, the cross, is the place where Christ died for his living church. And it wasn't a pretty place. It was an ugly place. It was a place that mothers would take their little children by just going out of the streets of Jerusalem and they would hurry by the crosses. Or they would, they would say, children, don't ever be like those, those terrible, terrible people on the cross there. Crosses symbolize the ugliness of sin. The just desert of death and hell for sinners. The cross was the precursor to hell. And to die alive on the cross was to die the most horrible death. Golgotha. The defaced beauty of Christ. The disfigured body of Christ. Suffering, bleeding everywhere from head to back to hands to feet. Bloodied everywhere. This is what God thinks of your sin and of my sin. God hates sin with a hatred We can't even begin to imagine. He hates actual sin. He hates original sin. He hates external sin, inward sin, sin in our faculties, sin in its roots, sin in its branches, sin in our thoughts, sin in our words, sin in our actions. God hates sin. He outlaws sin. He judges sin. The smallest sin deserves hell forever because God is holy. And He made us holy. And He made us able to stand. But we, in Adam, have chosen sin. The God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all 
cannot help but react to what is a contradiction of his own nature, namely sin. John Bunyan put it so well, sin is the daring of God's justice. Sin is the jeering of God's patience. Sin is the slighting of God's power. Sin is the contempt of God's love. Hell. Hell is what God thinks of sin. And see, our, our sin is that we think, when we think of God, we think of someone like ourselves. And because we're all sinners, we can easily forgive each other and say, well, yeah, I'm no better than you, and sure, I'll forgive you. But for God to forgive sin, someone, our substitute, must be absolutely perfect. And someone must pay the price of sin, for God is holy. How many people today in the church and outside of the church, think that God, God couldn't send someone to hell. How could a good God send someone to hell? Well, the real question is, how could a good God bring anyone into heaven? That's the real question. We all deserve hell 10,000 times over. Every one of us. And you see, that's what we need to understand. That the record of our bad heart and our bad thoughts and our bad words and our bad actions, boys and girls, you too, the record we have before God testifies against us. Our thoughts, our fantasies, our emotions, our resentment, our bitterness, our self-pity, it all condemns us. Our words, which are often harsh, and cruel, and cold, condemn us. Our actions do little better. What we do to our dearest friends, our closest relatives, those we most depend upon, even that condemns us. We all like sheep, verse 6 says. We all like sheep have gone astray. And so immense is our sin, so profound is our depravity before God, That there's only one way that we can be reconciled to Him. Through His disfigured, defaced Son who bore the essence of hell for us. That's the way. Through Him who says, I've given my life a ransom for many. There's no other way. No other way for a holy, holy, holy God to forgive our bad, bad, bad sin. And through the blood, the disfigurement of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered the wrath of a sin-hating God against us. He tasted death for us. He entered the lake of fire for us, going into the bottomless pit as our substitute, taking our death into the grave to bury it there forever. If we are true believers, that was what Golgotha was all about. And so when we sing about the wondrous cross upon which our Savior died, don't think of a beautiful place. Don't think of a Savior that looked dignified. Think of everything about the place and everything about Jesus being defaced and looking atrocious and revolting. Golgotha is a place of skulls and bones and rotting flesh and three crude crosses, dingy and blood-stained, supporting three naked bodies in that awful place. And there, your Savior, dear child of God, poured out His blood, poured out His life literally, but also spiritually was forsaken on every hand, forsaken by His Father in heaven who turned away His face of pleasure from Him, forsaken by the realm of nature, the sun would not even shine upon Him, forsaken by heaven, by earth, by hell, and He hung between them all, forsaken by all the religious people of the day, the order of the day in terms of Sanhedrin and scribes and Pharisees. The disciples, for the most part, fled And the women that followed him turned their faces away. He was too disfigured. Even Mary, 
John had to say, Mary, the mother of Jesus, we, we need to leave now. It's too bad. He's too disfigured. A sword went through the heart of Mary. But most of all, the sword, the sword of his father's forsakenness pierced the heart of the well-beloved son who was perfectly obedient to his father so that your sin, dear believer, could be completely wiped away. This is the mystery. This is the wonder of the cross. The unclean place, the passions of the mob, the sufferings of the soul, the coldness of God toward his well-beloved. Such are the wages of sin. But he, those first two words of verse 5 are amazing. But he, but he, what a contrast between he and us. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Could that really be true, Lord? He was bruised for our iniquities. Can that be true? The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Yes, it is true. But oh, what a price! Oh, what a price! He was disfigured beyond recognition. And you see, when that becomes experiential reality in our souls, then we look at the crowns, at the, at the thorns in his crown, and we say, every one of those thorns is my sin. We look at the sword that pierces his side and the blood and water flow out. When we say, my sin, the nails that go through him, we say, my sin, God forsaking him, my sin. It's all my sin. Mary Winslow, that incredibly God-fearing female writer of the 19th century, once wrote to her son, Octavius Winslow, wonderful preacher, these words, Son, If Jesus died for no one else but for me, he would have had to suffer everything he suffered to cover the magnitude of my sin. You see, once you understand that your sins interface with Christ's sufferings fully, you will cherish those sufferings a thousand times more. It's like Anselm said in his famous book, Why God-Man, to Bozo, the, one, the man who is interviewing, the beginning disciple who couldn't understand why sin was so, so terrible and grace so, so amazing. Anselm finally turned to Bozo in frustration and said, Bozo, Your problem is you can't grasp the magnitude of grace because you haven't realized the heinousness of your sin. Slight sins, the pure, slight conviction of sin, the Puritans used to say, gives us at best slight views of Christ. It is a blessing to see the seriousness of sin so that we might embrace the magnitude of the grace of God in the blood of Christ. I ask you this morning, are you dallying with sin? Are you treating sin as something rather minor? Are you shaking it off and saying, well, but everybody does it? 
Or have you ever become a sinner, a lost sinner before a holy God? It cried out, give me Jesus, else I die. I need that Savior. Have you ever truly believed in the Son of God? You know, we can use that word believe so easily today. Oh, just believe in Jesus and you're saved. (laughs) No, 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 no. Believing in Jesus is surrendering yourself and all your sins to Him. This is not a small thing. This is huge. Is it simple? Yes, it's simple, but it's profound. It's a simple faith. It's a simple thing. But you see, by nature, we resist that because we want to live in our own righteousness. True exercising the faith, true surrendering to Christ is a profound thing because it means I've learned experientially to relegate all my righteousness to the dustbin of garbage. To count everything but garbage and dung, Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. But He, oh, that's music. That's music to the ears of a sinner who feels he deserves nothing but hell. He was wounded for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, his bloody stripes, we are healed. Because when we believe into him and repent before him, and his righteousness is imputed to us, all that he did in his bloodied, defigured condition, defaced condition, is imputed to us so that our sins are paid for. And all our sins are imputed to him. And this holy exchange takes place where we find our righteousness in him. And therefore, the great wonder, the great miracle of salvation. Because it pleased the Father to bruise his own son. Something you and I would never do with our own sons. The Holy Father did toward His Holy Son because, dear child of God, He loved you with an everlasting love. And He determined to find a way of salvation for you that could perfectly harmonize with all His attributes so that justice and holiness and love and grace and mercy could all combine in one in Him perfectly in your salvation. Praise God for the disfigurement, I say it with reverence, of his own son, because it is, after all, your total salvation. The divine will answers this question best of all. Why was Christ's beauty disfigured? It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Nothing you accomplished, nothing you or I could ever do or not do or think or not think. This is the total answer. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to so love his people to find the only Savior possible that could satisfy His justice. One who was very God, so that the infinite satisfaction He brought could satisfy an infinite God. It's God's will. It's God's will to do this. For our sin. Yes. For our sin, dear believer. The love of God for His people lies behind all the sufferings of His Son. And what lies behind the love of God? Nothing. The love of God. The pure, 
undiluted fountainhead of all is the sovereign, free, gracious, one-sided love of God. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving cords of loving kindness have I drawn thee. God's loving will to crush his own son. That's what made the poet write, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Jehovah lifted up his sword. O Christ, it fell on thee. So whenever, dear child of God, whenever you are tempted to doubt that God could love the likes of you, just remember this. It's his sovereign good pleasure. It's his amazing love. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated to us his love for us on Calvary more than any other place in the entire world. While we were yet enemies, the disfigured glory of the Lamb of God and His effaced beauty is the ultimate proof of God's astonishing gospel love to sinners and the ultimate proof of the astonishing will of the Father to bruise His own Son. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And there is deafening silence. As if God is saying, My son, I can do no else but forsake you so that I never have to forsake my people. For you are in their place. That's the gospel. Freely. Freely. That's why Christ said to drink the bitter cup of the wrath of his Father, down to its very bottom bitter dregs. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, my will, but thine be done. Again, deafening silence. Deafening silence. And the answer is this. I can't take that cup away from you. I take that cup away from thee, Lord Jesus. Salvation will not be merited. Then I won't be able to forgive my people. Then my decree of love will be destroyed. Then, I will, then we will cease to be God. You see, the beauty of Christ is that He drank the entire cup his father had given him, no matter how painful it was. And that's why when we come to the Lord's Supper, we take the cup, the cup of wine, signifying the cup of his blood. And we drink the cup, the cup that he drank from in bitter agony. We drink it in grateful joy. Remembering what he went through. Humbling ourselves by what he went through. Remembering his disfigured glory. And bowing in amazement and saying, Oh God, how great is thy salvation. The Puritans used to say, There is more evil in the smallest sin than there is in the greatest affliction. You see, it's when you drink that cup, the cup of Christ's suffering, out of gratitude, and you remember what He's done for you, and you consider sin's ugliness, sin's sheer, appalling, ghastly ugliness, in the light of what Thomas Watson called the red glass of Christ's suffering. It's then 
that you're overwhelmed by your salvation and you cry out, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord with thankful vow and declare thy praise in the midst of all thy people. The gospel is just amazing. He, in our place, that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. In accord with the sovereign will of the Father. I want to close with just a few applications. And to you first, dear believer. May we ever remember that he bore our likeness so that we out of gratitude may bear his likeness. He became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh and drew us to himself and enabled us to believe into him and to surrender to him so that we would never, ever, ever become tired of saying in this life and not to all eternity, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and dominion and power and wealth. We have defaced ourselves by sin. But God makes us beautiful again through the defacing of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And now, that's the wonder. That's the wonder. God sees every one of His children as beautiful in His sight. In fact, Zephaniah says He sings over you with rejoicing. You are a trophy of His amazing grace merited on Golgotha. Oh, be comforted. Be comforted, dear believer, by this glorious gospel of substitution that your salvation is forever finished on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago and the Holy Spirit is now just working it out through progressive sanctification so that He becomes greater and greater and you become less and less. He must increase and I must decrease. So be determined. Be determined to know nothing this passion season but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Cease from your own works as something that can give you cause for hope in your salvation. Don't be slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken of this glorious Savior, also the prophet Isaiah. And God forbid that you should glory in anything, anything, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. That Christ be your all and in all. And finally, my dear unconverted friend, hell Hell is the place of sin's defilement. In hell, everyone will be disfigured on account of sin. Sin disfigures us. Either it will disfigure you forever if you must bear it on your own account, or it has disfigured Christ who has borne it on your account. That's your only hope. But that's a sufficient hope, praise be to God. And that's an available hope. Without the substitutionary obedience of Jesus and His sufferings, you will endure forever the essence of what He endured just for a season. Hell is a terrible place. But there's still room in Christ for you. Room in His wounds for rebels and failures. Come and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. Come to the Savior. Confess your sins. 
Don't avoid the wounds of the Lamb, but flee to the wounds of the Lamb before you must one day face the wrath of the Lamb. Acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and flee to Christ. Surrender with all that you are. Repent and believe in Him alone for salvation. So as we enter this Passion season, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Is He your substitute? Is He your only comfort in life and death? What is your reaction to His defaced beauty? Do you turn away from its homeliness? Do you turn away from the cross? Or do you turn to Him and cast your sins upon Him and surrender to Isaiah's prophetic insight? He was defaced to save me, to save me, even me, from my sins. Do you know what it means to confess? This is the will of my Heavenly Father to bruise His own Son to save even me. That's the most amazing joy this life can hold for a sinner. When we stand amazed and in awe with our souls encamped at Calvary at the divine will that the Lord, the Father, was pleased to bruise His Son for your sake. Oh, may God help us to drink in the gospel, to drink the cup of His salvation to its bottom, joyful dregs that we might rejoice with joy unspeakable in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Gracious God, we know we've only scratched the surface this morning. But oh, what a precious, solemn, glorious place of love Amazing love, amazing grace, Calvary is. Help us to treasure the sufferings of thy Son as the essence of our salvation. And may these words go with us today, throughout this week, Could it be for the rest of our lives and to all eternity? But He, but He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities because it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Oh, may we rest in that and humble ourselves before Thee because of that and hate sin all the more and may we be beautified by his disfigurement so that one day we may meet him in glory with a blood passport his blood passport in our hands and be beautiful in his sight as he will be the beautiful king, prophet, priest in our sight. And that heaven will be a place of pure beauty and pure love, a world of love and beauty that makes the most beautiful place on this earth seem dull and drab in comparison to the glories and beauties of everlasting 
ecstasy and bliss in Jesus Christ and through him in thee, the triune God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.